where do we stand in the universe? By we, I mean Homo sapiens uh, and all other residents of this particular planet. And for that matter, what is the structure and the nature of the universe, and how does it relate to the eternal questions, including the questions of, uh, is there a transcendent power? Is there purpose to be discovered? Can one understand the beginning of things? These questions have been asked by one of the leading astrophysicists in the world, Joel Premack, a professor of physics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and his wife, Nancy Abrams, who are the co-authors of a book just now in hand, titled The View from the Center of the Universe. I thought we were off at some peripheral end of the universe, but we are reassured here that we are at the center of the universe, subtitled Discovering Our Extraordinary Place in the Cosmos. I begin with somebody you begin with, namely Blaise Pascal, who uh, said of the universe, uh, le silence éternel de ces espaces infinis m'affray, the silence, the eternal silence of these vast spaces, these infinite spaces, frightened me. They terrorized me. He felt alone in the universe and neglected by it. Yes. And that you attribute to the, um, the brilliant but somehow um, maladroit work or dysfunctional consequences of the work of Copernicus. Copernicus started it. Uh, it was really Galileo that convinced the church and a lot of other people that Copernicus had to be taken very seriously. Galileo absolutely disproved the Ptolemaic picture. And the Ptolemaic picture is that the center of the universe, the center of all reality, is this earth on which we stand. Exactly, and everything revolves around the earth. Yeah. And, which is nice. <laughs> but it's not true. Yeah. And when that was understood to be false in the early 1600s, uh, it really pulled the rug out from under all of the pretensions of medieval man. The problem was that there wasn't anything to replace it. There wasn't the physics to replace it. It became very unclear why things didn't just fall off the earth. Remember, the theory of gravity hadn't been invented yet. You know what that self-infatuated pseudoscientist uh, in Vienna said a number of hundreds of years later, Sigmund Freud? He said, three great disappointments have afflicted mankind. They've all been provided by science. The first was provided by Copernicus, who taught us we are not the center of the universe. The second was provided by Charles Darwin. And the third by Freud himself. The third. <laughs> Darwin's bad news was uh, that uh, we are not separate in creation. We are just animals related to other animals, and we have evolved. And then Freud's bad news was, well, at least we thought we were conscious and rational, but in fact, the unconscious rules, the primitive unconscious. And so we've been, we've been denied all of those uh, essences of our superiority. In 1984, after putting forward the theory that I called cold, dark matter, mm -hmm. and that term got uh, picked up by my colleagues, uh, I wrote a series of lectures, I gave a series of lectures, uh, which were then written and widely distributed, in which I said that the realization that we're not even made of the main component of the universe, the universe is mainly cold, dark matter, and we're not. We're made of ordinary matter, atoms, yeah. and atoms turn out to be a minority. Uh, and uh, at the time, 
I said, this is yet another blow to our anthropocentricity. So you've delivered the fourth blow. Exactly. <laughs> uh, incidentally, I was quite aware of Freud's comment, which I think was in New Introductory Lectures oh, yes, on Psychoanalysis, yeah, yeah. which yeah. I read. It's rather self-inflated. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Nancy and I uh, now, when we give lectures on this stuff, uh, like to say that we've now uh, realized that rather than uh, wallowing in our uh, being mere specks in an infinite universe that doesn't care about us, we can look at it the other way. It turns out that even from the point of view of atoms, we're not made of the ordinary common kind. Almost all the atoms in the universe are just hydrogen and helium, most of which just came out of the Big Bang. But we are made of atoms that are manufactured deep inside stars. And these are very rare. They represent only about a percent of all the atoms. What do you call those atoms? Well, uh, what astronomers call them is a very surprising thing. Astronomers call them metals. Mm -hmm. But what ordinary people would call them is heavy atoms or elements. Uh, a fun name is stardust. Mm -hmm. Because, in fact, they all are stardust at some stage. Uh, they're ejected from stars, often in supernovae, the explosions that end the lives of big stars, and they drift in between the stars as little particles, basically dust. So our minstrel, properly then, celebrating our nature, must be Hoagie Carmichael. Smoke gets in your eyes. No, stardust. 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 Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. It's stardust is what we are. And stardust is the rarest stuff in the universe. It's even rarer than neutrinos. Mm -hmm. We now know that neutrinos have mass. And we don't know how much mass they have, but we have a lower limit. And these are particles that hardly interact are with anything. Are all the elements in Mendeleev's table then stardust? Except hydrogen and helium. Except hydrogen and helium. That's truly interesting. Uh, as everything that you have written in this book, uh, you and Nancy Abrams have written in this book, is uh, quite interesting and really quite exciting. Nancy Abrams, you are not a physicist. You are, in fact, a lawyer. Yes. And trained as well in philosophy of science at, of all places, the University of Chicago. Yes, the University of Chicago. <clears throat> I believe I was the first person to graduate in that particular uh, major. And uh, yes, although I'm a lawyer, I have always worked in uh, um, science-related fields. I worked uh, in the Science Advisory Office of the U.S. Congress, the Office of Technology Assessment. And I have always worked in this area of trying to translate um, the way that scientists think for non-scientists who need to understand. And that's what you are doing in this book, the view from the center of the universe. I imagine that if you had not married uh, this fellow, Joel Premack, and uh, influenced him, though he would have been just as brilliant a physicist, he would have not gone quite as far as he has in this book towards yet other questions. No, that book would never have come about without me, that's for sure. So you were pressing Joel to answer what questions or to address what issues? I'm not pressing Joel to answer the questions. We answer these things together. You should not sure. imagine that this is a book that's entirely science, merely translated into um, accessible English. This is a whole new way of presenting the fundamental ideas of the universe. They can be and have been presented in other books, either uh, with the mathematical equations that the experts use or quite didactically and explained in long chains of logic, which appeal to some people, but really not most people. 
<clears throat> now, the main point that what we're trying to do here is not just to say this is the new picture of the universe. What we're trying to say is this is the new picture of the universe, and here is why it really matters to you. Now, it can't matter to people unless they can really feel what it's about. This is everyone's universe. This is not the universe that belongs to specialists. We actually are probably the first major culture that has never had a shared picture of the universe. Mm -hmm. And it's been a big mental handicap for us, I think. How but do you mean that? Simpler cultures or cultures of earlier time had mythological structures or even yes. pre-scientific um, uh, uh, systems which uh, were shared by all members of those cultures. Is that what you're saying? Yes, they had a shared idea of what was real. How they responded to mm. it, that may have been different. But because they had this grounding of this is what reality is, and even though, of course, it was totally wrong by our modern standards, they had that grounding. They were able to build their cultures on that. They were able to build their religions on that. They had shared stories. They had shared imagery. They had shared expectations of each other and of the gods. But our culture, if you can call it a culture, doesn't. We just have all kinds of different notions. and. If but there's always been an astrophysical model which has reigned as scientifically reasonable at a given time, and has there not? Well, the point that Nancy's making is... Even though it is, changes over time. After uh, the Copernican-Newtonian revolution, yeah. we didn't actually have that. Newton was quite aware that his theory did not give a coherent picture of the universe. Just uh, the billiard balls, so to speak. Well, for example... Uh, Newton was asked, is the universe infinite? Yeah. And he said, on the one hand, it has to be, because if it's not, there'll be a center, and everything will fall toward the center. But that obviously hasn't mm -hmm. happened, or it doesn't seem to be happening, so it must be infinite. But Newton was probably aware that his illustrious predecessor, Johannes Kepler, had already pointed out that if the universe is infinite, then in every direction there'll be a star. This, of course, assumes also that it's eternal. Mm -hmm. But that means that the night sky will be bright. But, of course, it's dark. Later on, this came to be known as Olbert, Olber's Paradox, after mm -hmm. it was discovered by many people and finally named after the last person who discovered it. But by the 1920s, Hubble uh, has, does a major empirical breakthrough and discovers, really, that the universe is expanding and is very vast. Uh, he doesn't quite address the question of whether it is infinite or whether it is bounded in a finite way, but that gives us a picture of the universe uh, which uh, has lasted to this moment. Well, interestingly, uh, Hubble himself was never convinced that his discovery meant that the universe is expanding. That was what theorists like Einstein mm -hmm. uh, realized that Hubble had found. But Hubble was uh, a great observer one of the great observational astronomers of history. But he insisted on sticking to the facts. And the facts that he discovered were that the more distant a galaxy is, the faster it's receding from us, yeah. the faster it's flying away from us. Uh, the modern interpretation is that the galaxies aren't really moving very fast at all. It's the space in between them that's expanding, and therefore the farther apart they are, the more of this expanding space <clears throat> and so, therefore, the faster they seem to recede, uh, that turns out for nearby galaxies to amount to the same thing. 
But once you're talking about great distances, then the galaxies are traveling much faster than the speed of light, which isn't really possible if you think of it as just ordinary speed. So it turns out to make a difference when you're talking about cosmology. But these are the kinds of things that only really made sense once we could put together a whole picture. Part of the realization that underlies our modern picture is that there really was a Big Bang. And we only found that out for sure when we discovered the heat radiation of the Big Bang in 1965. Penzias and Wilson? Penzias and Wilson, yeah. quite by chance. Yeah, they, they were for something else. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, uh, this was the noise in their receiver. And they wanted to get rid of the noise. Exactly, yeah. and they just couldn't. They pointed in every direction. They Bell Labs, as I remember. Uh, Holmdale, New yeah. Jersey. They, uh, yeah. they were busy uh, simply using a very large receiver. Many years ago, I talked with Arnold Penzias on this program about that very process. It was indeed a, a fortunate accident of discovery for which he got the Nobel Prize. But then we wind up with a model of the universe or a picture of the universe now, I think you are both attesting, which uh, makes a good deal of sense or which has been confirmed and which we can offer to all as a realistic representation of the reality within which we are lodged. What that model is, is the immediate question that we must pursue. After we pause for these words. Uh, that is, of course, Also Sprach Zarathustra, by Richard Strauss, better known uh, in this age as the music from Stanley Kubrick's 2001. He chose well, didn't he? Uh, yes. Whatever it is about the music, it suggests <laughs> the mystery of, of the universe and the creation and the expansion and of the drama. universe. Yes. Now, we were talking about the ultimate discovered nature of the universe, and you're assuring us in this book that we now have a standard model, and that's what it's commonly called, upon which there is a great deal of scientific consensus. What is that standard model? Well, I will very um, simply explain it. Um, we used to think that what could be seen, the stars, the gas, the dust, the distant galaxies, that what could be seen was what existed in the universe. But in fact, what we can actually see is only a percent of what's out there. And those are the atoms that are visible. There are some more 
atoms that are invisible, another 4%. But the vast majority of what's out there in the universe, 95% of what's out there, is dark matter and dark energy. And this is the essence of this new theory, which we're calling in our book the double dark theory. And the discoverer of uh, dark energy is, if I am uh, not uh, misinformed, Joel Premack. Your husband? No, not dark energy, but dark matter. He certainly uh, was one of the people who originated the theory of cold dark matter. Who's responsible for the discovery of dark energy? Well, the original idea of dark energy was something that Einstein came up with uh -huh. in 1916 mm -hmm. in a sort of desperation. His theory of general relativity, which ever since has been our modern theory of space, time, mm -hmm. and gravity, predicted that the universe couldn't be static. It had to be expanding or contracting. He realized that in 1916. So he asked his astronomer friends whether there was any evidence that the universe was doing those things, and they said, no, it doesn't seem to be. So he went back to the drawing board, and he realized that he could change the theory by assuming that space itself had a property that he called the cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. And that's the simplest form of what we now call dark energy. Well, it turned out that the universe is really expanding. Edwin Hubble. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot of dark matter and dark energy. Well, once it was realized the universe is expanding, Einstein thought, we don't need this silly cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. What a blunder. The greatest mistake he ever made, he said. That's what he thought. Yeah. But in fact, it's turned out to be one of his greatest insights yeah. because dark energy is what the universe mostly is made of. Well, but we only realized that in 1998, and it was discovered by observers. It wasn't theorists. The observation, we knew as theorists that this was a possibility ever since Einstein pointed it out in 1916. But the evidence became overwhelming because of several observations that happened in 1998. In particular, measurements of properties of the brightest kind of supernovae at very great distances. Two different teams did these measurements, competing with each other, both of them expecting to get a completely different answer. They both got exactly the same answer. And the, the answer was that the universe is expanding faster and faster, and that meant that dark energy is making up most and the of the universe. the proportions of the composition of all the stuff of the universe, uh, the largest proportion is dark energy. Dark energy, right? about 70%. About 70%. Of the density of the universe. Dark matter makes 25%. up... 25%. 25%. And visible matter, of the sort that we're commonly more commonly acquainted with, is... Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Right. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that the universe started in, in this very interesting way that people think of galaxies as being the visible part of a galaxy, but that's not really most of the galaxy. Most of every galaxy is a huge cloud or halo of dark matter, and only at the very center of this halo of dark matter is a little bit of visible matter, which has fallen to the center, because it can fall to the center, it can lose energy, and dark matter is invisible. It doesn't interact with light, and it can't really fall to the center because it can't lose energy. Let's zoom into something very, very much smaller on the uh, cosmological scale, namely our own solar system. Mm. Just a little corner of one galaxy uh, around one sun. Now, is there in 
uh, in our solar system, between us and Venus, and between Venus and Mars, and so oh, on. Oh yeah, so there's on. plenty of dark matter. Dark matter is all over. There's even. dark matter going through your body, but it doesn't have a lot of effect on us. Uh huh. Um, inside the solar system, it doesn't make that much difference. Why not? Joel, you answer that. Um, one of the things that people naturally do is imagine that what they see around them is normal. Mm -hmm. But the Earth <clears throat> is the densest planet in the solar system. Density means the amount of matter in a given volume. And the solar system Not is, the largest, but the densest. It's the densest. Yeah. It's made of the heaviest stuff. Mm -hmm. And the solar system is much denser than a random place in our galaxy. It's about a million times denser than an average spot in our galaxy. The galaxy is pretty empty, except up close to stars. And our galaxy is a million times denser than an average place in between the galaxies. The dark matter is everywhere in the solar system and everywhere in our galaxy, but because the solar system is so dense with ordinary matter, and the Earth is so much denser than just a random spot in the solar system, we don't notice the effects of dark matter here at all without super-sensitive equipment. A lot of groups around the world are building super-sensitive equipment in the hope that they will eventually be able to see the dark matter in their very sensitive experiments. They haven't yet. A derivation from Copernicus and Galileo, as we agreed, in, and as you note in the beginning of the book, and as we discussed at the beginning of this uh, program, is that we are sort of trivial residents of a trivial uh, side corner of the universe. And you're saying that this new model uh, changes that sense of our own peripherality and returns us to centrality. How does it do yes, it? Yes, it does, because it's only if you use the word center in a very simplistic, literal sense, that is, a geographical center. But uh, we're obviously not the geographical center of the universe. There is none in an expanding universe. What we are is central to some of the underlying principles of the universe. So one way, for example, is that we are made of the rarest material in the universe. We're made of these heavy atoms that are so, so very rare, as Joel was just explaining. Another is that our size, although people think of, think of us as being tiny little specks in a vast universe, we're not tiny at all. We're actually halfway between the smallest and the largest possible sizes. We're actually the middle size. That's what human beings are. We as organic creatures or? We human beings, but a lot of other creatures along with us. I mean, the, the range is huge, and the middle yeah. is, is not quite that Just well looking at the, at the animal life on the earth is what you're talking about. Yes, sort yeah. of somewhere between the size of um, uh, a well, bug. Yeah, whales are bigger and ants are smaller, to yeah, be sure. Yeah, somewhere between a bug and a tree. All right. Yeah. But um, there actually is a smallest size and a largest size, and that's why we can say that. Mm -hmm. um, we're also at the center of our visible universe. We are at the center of time in several different interesting ways. We're nope. at the center of the lifetime of our solar system. We're at the center of the habitable period on Earth. The center of the lifetime of our solar system. The middle. Our solar system is about five billion years old. Is that right? Yeah. And, has and it's it... going to last for another five billion? Or maybe six. And then the sun will turn into a red giant. Yeah. It'll swell up into a gigantic star that will almost fill the entire orbit of the Earth. And, of course, the Earth will be burned to a crisp. Sure. So just about 
halfway between the birth of the solar system and the end of the solar system as we know it is where we are right now. The great question that I think modern astrophysics and cosmology with all of the advances that have been made has not yet answered and may not be equipped to answer is the one that uh, was given um, a very cogent form by the philosopher Heidegger. I pose the question just as we pause for some commercials and I wonder whether you can illuminate some sort of answer to it when we return after those simpler certainties that will be asserted by the advertisers. That question is simply, why is there anything rather than nothing? Why is there reality? Why is there a universe? Uh, evolution explains organic creatures and so on. That's a lesser question. But why is there anything? And we might address that when we return after this. And we return to Joel Premack, professor of physics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the co-author with Nancy Abrams, who is a writer, lawyer, and philosopher of science, uh, of the new book, The View from the Center of the Universe, Discovering Our Extraordinary Place in the Cosmos. But the question I was raising, the ultimately prior question is, why is there a, how does it come to be that there is a cosmos at all? Why, as um, we have it from Heidegger, uh, why is there anything rather than nothing? You got an easy answer for that one? Not only do I not have an answer to that, but I can't even imagine what could be a satisfactory answer to mm -hmm. that question. You asked the question, though, uh, two different ways. You said, why is there something rather than nothing? And then while and then we were said, off the air, I said, how, how, did, did, it come to how be? did it come to be that there is anything rather than nothing? Are those different questions? Absolutely. The first question the why question mm -hmm. is one that most of us astrophysicists think is not a scientific question. It's a teleological question. It's it, a question it for purpose. That's right. And yeah. it's not clear how we could possibly answer a question like that. Uh, but the other question, namely how, yeah. we love those questions. All right. Those are the scientific questions. I'll settle questions. for that if you could answer it. How did it come to be that there is anything rather than nothing? Well, our best current theory goes like this. Yeah. The first part starts in a sort of mythological mist. It's an extrapolation from our scientific theories called eternal inflation. According to this, the early stage of our part of the universe and what's actually filling almost all of the larger universe is a very different sort of state of being than the one that we're used to. It's one that's entirely quantum mechanical, where chance rules everything. And it's flying apart faster and faster and faster all the time. However, because it's a totally chancy situation, every little region of space is constantly, effectively flipping a coin. And if the coin keeps coming up tails, which is possible, then after a certain number of flips, it ceases to keep expanding, and it suddenly turns into a little piece of universe like ours. I think I recognize there the thought of Andre Linda, is that right? Yes. Uh, the, the details were really first worked out by Andre, although there are a number of other people, yeah. including Alex Valenkin, another Russian-born astrophysicist, who had similar ideas. Uh, but the basic idea, as we now think of it uh, was really 
first clearly explained in a series of papers and then a book by Andre Linda. But I must protest, or at least I must note, that really isn't an answer to how did it come to be that there is anything rather than nothing. It's an answer to what happened once there was something. Yes, uh, but it's the how question. Yeah. The how uh, basically asks, well, what happened next, and then what happened after that, and what happened But what about that? ultimate, but, the, the, but it begs the question, or it avoids the question of ultimate origin. Absolutely. And in fact, I said that we start in a sort of misty, mythic realm, yeah. because the fact is we haven't the slightest shred of evidence that this realm I described, this quantum mechanical realm, is really there, that things really began mm -hmm. that way. What we do have is a theory that describes what happens immediately at the beginning, uh, after these many uh, coin flips that come up, tails as I described it. Uh, what happens right after that, we've got a nice mathematical explanation of that makes lots of predictions. And all of those predictions that have been tested, and there have been quite a few, have turned out to be exactly in accord with the observation. That so theory, we take that seriously. That theory by Linda and various others does lead you also to a speculative elaboration that, uh, of, that our universe is just one of many, many universes and is lodged within what is now commonly called the multiverse. Exactly. So the multiverse is the ground of being, if you like, yeah. uh, out of which everything springs. And interestingly, there's no reason to think that these other regions that form when the coins happen to come up tails many times are like ours. The laws of physics may be different. The number of dimensions might even be different. Yeah. So uh, it may very well be that our universe is absolutely unique. But anyway... As all, are all other possible universes. Exactly. Yeah. But all of this is sheer speculation because we don't even know how to test it. In principle, the way we've tested is we would work out the consequences of this theory and see that it predicts that uh, universes that start this way have to have certain properties. But and then we'd look and see if our universe is like that. But, but we, we don't even know how to do that. Yeah, but let me put this to Nancy. Is it not the case that lots of people, even some modern physicists, uh, faced with the question of how did it ultimately come to be that there's anything rather than nothing, fall back upon the only possible explanatory principle? There was a, there is a creator. There is something which is usually referenced in common language by the word God. Well, sure, lots of people fall back on that, including some scientists, but that doesn't answer the question either. I mean, anyone who doesn't fall back on the idea of God can then just ask, well, where did God come from? Yeah. So um, these are the kinds of questions that, uh, depending on what satisfies you as an answer, they will satisfy one person and not another. Um, well, you, I don't know. you can then begin to define God as... You know, using uh, uh, medieval theology as the perfected presence of all that uh, all on all dimensions that are conceivable, and thus eternality would be one such dimension, and God would be eternal, was always there. Uh, and therefore, you don't have to account for where God came from. Well, you've defined the then you you've um, given your answer by definition, so that's really not a very satisfying answer True. to a person like me. True. So there is no answer. Well, not to the question of why is there anything, but yeah. there are answers to lots of other questions other that are much questions. more interesting. Yeah. Not just how questions, but questions about ourselves. I mean, how should we take this? Why should we care? What, what is it that we're really looking for? What, 
what do we think of as truth? Um, different people uh, think of truth very differently. And some people have this notion that there's something called ultimate truth, and it's perfect, mm -hmm. and it's eternal, and it's unchanging, and that's oh. what we all need to seek. But then uh, in science, there's no such concept as ultimate truth. This lead, you're now leading us towards something which is very important in your book, namely a response to an aspect of the modern mood which has been there perhaps since Copernicus, certainly has been there over the last few hundred years. Uh, Kierkegaard elaborates it. Uh, the followers of Kierkegaard or his descendants, uh, known as the existentialist philosophers, say the same. Their, their view is that there's no meaning to existence unless we make up a meaning and we can work with certain fictions. But essentially, life and our existence is absurd. Uh, and uh, we impute to it to kind of maintain our survival, meanings and purposes and a good and concepts of good and evil, which help to sustain us. But finally, uh, we sit in the dark, desolate realization that nothing matters, nothing has any final purpose or any final validity or any final truth. What answers do you have as given in your new book, The View from the Center of the Universe, to that rather desolate consciousness. Well, our um, answer... Uh, no, don't give the answer now. <laughs> I'm playing the radio trick. I raise the question, <laughs> and the answer will be provided in three minutes after we pause okay. for these words. And directly back to Nancy Abrams and Joel Premack, authors of the new book, The View from the Center of the Universe. Uh, it was last Friday. We did a program with a fellow who's done a biography of Peggy Lee, the great uh, singer. And you remember the great Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is? We played it, in fact, on the program, together with a number of our other things. And it's a song, really, essentially about, uh, it it's, uh, expresses uh, the dismay of nihilism. There's finally no meaning. There's finally nothing to sustain us. There's no truth. There's no beauty, except that we invent it. Uh, is there an answer to the nihilistic uh, desolation yes. provided by your image of the universe? Yes, there is. Because we think that the existential, this whole existential approach is based on a 17th century picture of reality. That mm -hmm. is, it's based on the Newtonian picture. And as you mentioned at the beginning, Pascal, the way he expressed it was that he just thinks of these enormous, basically infinite spaces as being terrifying. Well, why was it terrifying? Because before the time of Newton and Copernicus and Galileo, during the Middle Ages, people not only believed that Earth was the center of the universe and it was surrounded by spheres that carried the planets and the stars, but they believed that right outside the sphere of the fixed stars was God. God was physically there. So the universe was finite and everyone and the universe was embedded inside God and inside heaven. And this was a very comforting picture. So when the Newtonian and Copernican revolution destroyed that picture of the of the spheres and posited space as being possibly infinite, suddenly there was no place for God. That was the terrifying element of it. And and of course Pascal was a monk, so it was very terrifying to him. Now, we have not for the last four hundred years had a picture of the universe in our minds, a mental picture of the universe that people were a part of. We've had this notion, this existential idea, that it's we're just thrown, we're tossed into this meaningless place, and we have to create meaning because there isn't anything out there. Well, that's because they didn't understand how the universe is put together. I have to give you Tonto's response to Lone Ranger, 
at a time of at a time of danger. What do you mean, we, white man? Uh, <laughs> but the, the fact is that there are lots of people who are still sustained by the religious vision and by religious doctrine, whether it's Christianity, yes. Islam, Judaism, or what have you. They still believe in God and they believe in a, a sacred order uh, throughout reality. Yes, and um, so who are the it's you're totally about? it is totally understandable that people would do that because. If you look at the history of cosmologies and the role that they've played in people's lives and in their religions, you find that when people have a shared picture of the universe and how they as a people fit in, and not only a picture, but they have stories and myths and, um, and beautiful imagery that they can build art on and so forth. Mm -hmm. When they have that, that's when a civilization really flourishes. Now... We need that because we're the same kind of people who lived thousands of years ago. Genetically, we're exactly the same. But we have had science for 400 years, and that has prevented us from having a picture that was untrue. Untrue pictures used to satisfy people. And in fact, that is the basis of many religions, scientifically untrue physical pictures. But now the amazing thing is we have a true, possibly true, possibly the first true picture of the universe ever, and in this picture, it is possible to see ourselves as central. It is possible now to have imagery that shows how we're central. And that's what our book does. It presents several different images, what we call them symbols, that represent fundamental ideas of the, mo of the modern universe. And in every single one of those symbols, we show where we, human beings, well, I don't want to say human beings. The fact is, we means intelligent beings, all intelligent beings. Anything that's true about us is going to be true about aliens if they exist too that are intelligent. They may even be the same size we are. They may even have the same lifespan. There's a lot of things that may be true about them too. We have a chapter on that. So when you say who is we, we means different things depending on what aspect of the universe you're thinking about. We could mean we intelligent beings. It could mean we life. It could mean we the Milky Way galaxy. For example, when we say we are the center of the visible universe, we mean our galaxy. But assuming that we now have got a, a, a workable, effective, scientifically verified model of the universe, what, how does that restore meaning to uh, the existence of those whom we are designating as we? Let me give one example that seems particularly timely. Um, one of the most important lessons of cosmology is the concept of cosmic time. Mm -hmm. There are two aspects. One, it's really long. The universe is very old, and it's going to be around for a very long time in the future. But there's another thing. It's only about 14 to 15 billion years old. Right? Yes, but that's a long time compared yeah. to a human lifespan, for example. Uh, but the other thing is that the universe has gone through many transitions. The universe in the current epoch is nothing like the universe a few minutes after the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang was very different again. And there will be, in the future, very, very different aspects to the universe. We are going through a transition of great magnitude on Earth today. We have reached the end of the exponential expansion of the human presence on Earth. We've been doubling our numbers and redoubling and redoubling and we've reached the end of the line. There's no one who
who's thought carefully about it, who thinks that the Earth can support twice the present human population. We've reached the end of doubling, and it's just happened in our lifetimes. We also have been exploiting the Earth even faster than our numbers have been expanding. And I think people are realizing that that also has to stop, and has to stop very quickly. Interestingly, the same thing happened in the universe in its youth. We think the universe also started by a period of very rapid expansion. That's this cosmic inflation idea. And then it suddenly made a transition, but not to collapse and not to stop expanding. It you just seem to be suggesting that we discover meaning by discovering our obligations and responsibility. That's part of it. And also discovering that the universe may have provided models that at least in a metaphoric sense. Which define our responsibility. They can help us get through. Yeah. More of this anon. We are drawing in this conversation from the new book by Nancy Abrams and Joel Premack, The View from the Center of the Universe, uh, subtitled Discovering Our Extraordinary Place in the Cosmos. And that is just published by... Riverhead Books, Riverhead Vision of Books. Penguin. Um, and you were in the middle, uh, Joel, of somehow demonstrating that we acquire meaning, or meaning is made available to us, and purpose in our lives, and significance in our lives, by the lessons that the now established model of the nature of reality uh, provides for us. Uh, I think it's at least part of what gives us meaning. Uh, if you imagine suddenly waking up one morning and having no memory at all, not knowing where you came from, or what your plans were, that's real meaninglessness. Uh -huh. But then you realize that's telling you that where meaning must come from is, at least in part, your history and your plans for the future. So the way to obtain a source of meaning is to identify yourself with your history and to think through what you want to do and become and what effects you want to have on the world and the people around you. It seems to me that, that uh, without those things, there's no meaning. And the immediate derivations that you seem to get from that are environmentalist responsibilities. Well, we start to feel what we start to feel how we fit into the flow of life, yeah. that we are so much bigger than we uh, are if we just think of ourselves as a, as a single individual. When you think of yourself in your cosmic context, you have to think of your very largest self and um, how you may affect the rest of the universe the same way that it affects you. Um, we do use we do use environmental examples because we are very concerned about the state of the planet right now. We're very concerned that the amount of resources that people are using is inflating tremendously and that we're really running up against limits. Then there have to be changes. We're also concerned that you cannot make you can't make people make changes by just telling them they have to do so. They have to have some kind of a vision, something that gives them the impetus that makes them feel they're sharing this new project with other people in order to, and also that people who are not sharing it should be ashamed of themselves. That whole thing is part of a new vision. There hasn't been a vision for the long-term future of this planet because there wasn't any foundation for it. There was no agreement, really, on even what reality is. 
One of the things that is happening and that our book discusses is that we have an enormous opportunity right now that has only arisen twice since biblical times, and that is to re-envision reality in the light of a completely new picture of the universe. It's only happened twice. It's not going to happen again anytime soon. This is a new picture of the universe, and it really does change everything across the board. He says it only happened twice. What two occasions? When the flat earth, when when the belief in the flat earth changed to a belief Uh that the earth was in fact round in the center of the universe, and when the belief that the earth was round in the center of the universe was changed to the belief that earth was merely a planet, Mm -hmm. you know, around an average star, basically nowhere. Now we're in a now we are in a cosmological revolution that is on the same scale as the Copernican revolution. It's that big. The big difference, though, is we can see this right now. You know, people today have a sense of history that they didn't have thousands of years ago. We can see where this is going. Joel and I have been teaching this course, Cosmology and Culture, for 10 years. We've been studying what happens when cosmologies change. It's pulling the rug out from under the entire society. Institutions fall. And we can foresee that with this new picture of reality, esoteric as it may seem to some people now, it will be absorbed into the culture, and major changes will happen. Let's make those changes positive. Let's frame this in a way that people can really understand and find a foundation for future vision in. How do these changes, provoked by an alteration in our basic cosmological model, have bearing upon not merely our environmental problems, but say our internation problems? How do they have bearing upon human conflict, which has raged as for as far back as we've got record of human society? Well, let me give one example. Physicists like to say more is different. What that means, it, it's a, a sort of a slogan that's especially popular in condensed matter physics, the physics of solids and fluids and so forth. What it means is that the behavior of small numbers of things is not the same as the behavior of large numbers of things, even if they're the same kind of things. We're made of atoms, but we don't act like atoms. Uh, If you just have a small number of water molecules, then it doesn't make sense to talk about the temperature. That's not a concept that makes sense if you just have a small number of things. But if you have a large number, then you can have a crystal, a snowflake, for example, or you can have a liquid, or you can have a gas. So you you realize that once you have a significant number of something, the very way that you talk about it, the kind of phenomena that are relevant, are different. What about people? I think the same thing's true. If you just have a small number of people, and after all, humans, for most of the 100,000 years or so that our type has been on Earth, have lived in small groups, uh, the kinds of relationships that you have depend on personal knowledge of each other and uh, personal relationships, family, clan, tribe. So a lot of the morality that we've inherited is basically that sort of morality. Unfortunately, or maybe it's not a matter of fortune, it's just a matter of fact, the way people behave in large groups is just not like that. A corporation is not a person. A corporation can be in many places at once. A corporation can last 
an indefinite period of time. A country, even more so. Countries are not kind. People can, people can be very kind to each other. But corporations and countries can't be. At least, they're not normally. It's not part of the way they operate. We need to develop a morality or a, 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 a proper way of behaving that's appropriate for the different size scales that we're encountering on Earth. Uh, is civilization the right size scale? It's not clear that that even makes sense and uh, that a clash of civilizations is a useful concept. But at least we have to learn to think about what are the appropriate, appropriate concepts to apply when you're dealing with different numbers because more is different. Nancy raised an interesting perspective uh, a while back in our conversation uh, by the, with the speculation that there may very well be other beings as intelligent as we are, perhaps even having evolved elsewhere. This is extraterrestrial life, the concept of it, having evolved elsewhere in forms not totally unlike our own physical form. I've got a contribution by a visitor to this program a long time ago, um, namely Carl Sagan, which I want to play for you and get your reactions to it, uh, about what will happen, what might happen, when we make contact with extraterrestrial intelligence at our own or at a higher level. We'll be directly back to Joel Premack, Nancy Abrams, and an excerpt from an earlier conversation with Carl Sagan after this. And we return to Joel Primack and Nancy Abrams, and I promised you a little excerpt from a conversation with Carl Sagan. This goes way back, the first time of many times that he was on this program. This is 1973, when I was just beginning to do this program, and we talk about the possibility of encounter with extraterrestrial intelligent life. There's one question that's been on my mind through all this conversation. It's an indulgence of my own professional concerns and interests. Um, there are social psychological implications, particularly in the question of what happens when we ultimately do make contact with some civilization at our own or at a higher level. Um, we haven't done too well when bands of men, members of the same species, have suddenly come upon each other in a forest clearing. Indeed, bands of men called nations don't do too well these days in fully understanding each other and getting along in a cooperative, mutually uh, satisfying way. What really might the consequences be when that contact is made, both in terms of how the contact will go, but also, of course, in terms of our own attitudes towards ourselves? and uh, the consequences for the further playing out of the drama of our own civilization. It's a very deep question, and I, I can't pretend to have any definitive answers, but I'll, I'll, I'm glad to tell you what I think. Uh, surely the history of our own species has been a very dismal one in this, in this regard, and, and almost every time uh, two societies meet and one is technologically just slightly more advanced than the other, the, the more advanced guys wipe out the less advanced guys, even though the less advanced guys may be better artistically or ethically or all sorts of other ways. Um, and many people have, uh, have a fear that uh, that will happen when we make contact. Uh, I think that's unlikely for many reasons. One is um, that we cannot, at least in the next few centuries, pose a threat to anybody else because the great distances between the stars provides a kind of natural quarantine. Um, so I think it's certainly not 
an immediate problem. They're safer on their side of the galaxy than we were in the old days on our side of the Atlantic. Absolutely right. And another aspect of it is that uh, I can, after all, the, the most likely contact mode is radio. So we have a big message, let's say. Let's say the Encyclopedia Galactica comes in. Well, we don't assimilate it right away. We have to understand it slowly. We have to test out each aspect of it to make sure we haven't misunderstood something. That's an enterprise of decades or centuries. That's not something that's going to happen right away. And uh, it's kind of, of as if we just discovered, uh, let's say, uh, uh, all of the literature of ancient Greece. We didn't know anything about them, and suddenly here was Aristotle and Plato and Archimedes and Euclid and Thucydides and Herodotus and those fellows. Well, we take a time for us to, uh, to assimilate all that. It's one-way communication in time. We don't talk to Thucydides, but he talks to us. It would have a significant effect on our civilization, but slowly, at a rate that we could assimilate. And I think that's likely to be the case of uh, successful interstellar contact. The final point I'd make is that, uh, is that once such contact were made, once it were clear that the alien civilization were very different from us, I think the differences among men would, uh, would rapidly disappear and uh, the similarities uh, between us, among us, would be entirely clear. I could see contact having a very uh, unifying and positive uh, consequence for men. Well, I've got one. Wasn't he, Ray? Yes. Yes, Just you miss him. So, so, so exciting the way he formulated his thought. But it is an interesting question. You've got a colleague uh, uh, at your, in, I guess, in your physics department, uh, Frank Drake who was the author of the Drake Equations, and Carl worked with him on that. This is the equations by which one estimates the likelihood of extraterrestrial life of some intelligence uh, being located out there. What's Frank Drake's current answer to the question of what's out there by way of other life? I think Frank thinks that the estimates that he made back about the time of, that you recorded that conversation uh, with Carl are probably still valid. We know a lot more now. Mm -hmm. uh, we've actually discovered about 200 planets yes. outside our own solar system. We didn't know any just 10 years ago. Uh, we're beginning to see how common or uncommon our sort of planetary system is. We haven't discovered any like it. So lots of planetary systems are out there, but ours may be unusual. And we also realize that a system like ours seems to be necessary for a planet like Earth to exist. So maybe we're not quite so common, but it turns out that uh, when Drake and Sagan and others made the early estimates, uh, they didn't assume that we were all that common after all. Uh, the estimates, the, the, the final uh, uh, answer in the Drake equation came down to this. Uh, if you put reasonable numbers in, you find that the number of radio-emitting civilizations the ones that we could hope to hear from, in our galaxy is approximately equal to the lifetime of such civilizations in years. So if we don't blow ourselves up for 100 years, then and we're typical, then the number of such radio-emitting civilizations in the Milky Way is about 100. If we last a million years, well, then there might be a million. Of course, we don't know how long we are going to last or how long typical civilizations of this kind last, if there are any others. 
Uh, but you might think, well, let's assume it's something like a million. Does that mean that there are any nearby? It doesn't, actually, because uh, the lifetime of the galaxy is very long, the galaxy is very large. It's most likely that the nearest one is perhaps a thousand light years away. The galaxy is very big. That's very small on the scale mm -hmm. of the galaxy. But it's very large compared to what we've actually searched. We've only actually looked out a distance of about 100 light years. There's a new radio telescope that Frank Drake's organization, the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Group, uh, is building with some money from one of the co-founders of uh, Microsoft, Paul Allen. Mm -hmm. So it's called the Allen Array. Yeah. It's a huge radio telescope. Also, the University of California is, is participating in this. And that's going to be able to search out to a thousand light years. May not seem much difference, a hundred light years and a thousand light years. It's a thousand times the volume. It's a thousand times the number of stars. That's going to go into operation next year. It's just possible that in the next few years, we may actually pick up a signal from an extraterrestrial intelligence. But it may be a thousand years, a thousand light years away. That means that any message that we receive was sent a thousand years ago. And any answer that we or our descendants might send won't be received for a thousand years. So as Carl said, uh, these things are not going to happen on a very short time scale, the, the absorption of a message and the communication. On the other hand, the impact of just realizing that we're not alone could be enormous. Nancy has some interesting thoughts on that. Well, my thought on the question of are we alone is this, that when most people ask the question, are we alone, what they think they're asking is, are there other intelligent aliens out there? But seriously, the question, are we alone, is a question about ourselves. Because what would it take for us to think that we're not alone? If you're in a room and there's a fly buzzing around in the room, and otherwise there's nobody there, you're very likely to feel alone. That fly is not company. But if you're swimming in a pool with dolphins, you might not feel alone. So there's obviously a big difference there. The real question when we ask that, the real question behind it is, what would we require of an alien intelligence before its existence would convince us that we are not cosmically alone? Would it have to have a certain amount of compassion or understanding or intellect or what would it take? And the reason this is important is not because we're likely to meet them soon. I totally agree with Carl saying we are not likely to meet them soon. Nevertheless, it's really important to think about this now because if we could figure out what it is about an alien that would make us make our cosmic aloneness dissolve. That would be the essence of humanity. Mm -hmm. That would be the that would be what a long range global civilization should really seek to cultivate today. You know, it occurs to me that there are people in my discipline that is in psychology, not so much social psychology, but in cognitive psychology and what used to be called animal psychology, who were motivated by the same sense of loneliness and wanted to find or persuade themselves that there were other beings available who were capable of something like human um, intellective function, namely, of course, the higher apes. And so we had a great deal of research trying to teach language, most particularly to teach uh, American Sign Language, Amazlan, to uh, 
chimpanzees and to gorillas. Well, Joel's cousin, David Premack, used to do that. He's, I, I know his work, of course. He's up at the uh, university. Penn. Uh, Penn, yeah, Penn. And uh, what you, what he worked with symbol systems with chimpanzees. Exactly. Yeah. And he had a particularly brilliant chimp named Sarah, uh, who actually had a vocabulary of several hundred of these plastic symbols. Did he... The, the faith has, has, has dissolved. The belief that we've got apes who are capable of syntactic, uh, organized, conceptually significant language was once held by some experimenters, but by now it has pretty much deteriorated on the basis of failed replication or the, closer examination of the data. How does your cousin feel about it? Well, that's in fact one of the things that David did. Uh, he himself, amusingly, didn't like chimps at all. Uh -huh. uh, they're dangerous they and smelly nice. and uh, not very pleasant animals. Uh, but he was intellectually excited about the chimps, and he had assistants who were very good with animals. But his scheme was to try to figure out how to teach chimps various things. And mm -hmm. he and his students would invent protocols for teaching chimps things. And they would try very hard to see whether a chimp could learn something. And when many different attempts failed, then they actually learned something. Namely, they discovered what appear to be the limits of uh, the intelligence of chimps. One of the things that David discovered was that chimps apparently can't understand personal pronouns. Mm -hmm. They can understand that a certain symbol, a green triangle, for example, can represent something else, an apple. And they could answer apparently sophisticated questions, like, what is the color of the green triangle? And they would understand, depending on the context, whether that meant the color of apple, red, or the color of the triangle, green. But they never could understand, for example, I, a, a simple word that means something different if I say it and if you say it. That apparently is beyond mm -hmm. chimp intelligence. And there were a lot of other things that, that uh, David discovered in, in his group uh, that apparently chimps simply can't grok. And uh, that's progress when you discover... Yeah. Uh, but there's some disappointment there as well. That's also true. Yeah. Uh, we are uh, due for another round of commercials, and it is time to invite telephone calls. We're opening the lines right now. Uh, the number is ever, 5917200. Anything you've heard that prompts a question or a further thought, we'd be very glad to hear from you. 591-7200 for conversation with Joel Premack and Nancy Abrams, the co-authors of the new book, The View from the Center of the Universe, Discovering Our Extraordinary Place in the Cosmos. If you are listening to us over the Internet at some greater distance and would rather be in touch via email, the email address is, as ever again, um, extension720 at tribune.com. In fact, if you're listening to us... Uh, on one of the satellites of um, of Jupiter, and somehow have contact uh, and have uh, a, a computer system handy, you can be in touch. Extension 720 at Tribune.com or 5917200. We'll be on to your contributions directly after we pause for this, and we will go directly to the phones and shortly to some email as well for your questions and comments to Joel Premack and Nancy Abrams. And here is the first caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Hubble's protege and successor at Mount Palomar, Alan Sandage, went a little bit beyond the question you posed earlier this evening 
of why there's something instead of nothing. He asked further, why is the universe describable in differential equations? How reasonable would it be to answer Sandage by postulating that a being who understood calculus used mathematics to make an orderly cosmos? So that's God who is a master of differential calculus. Did he learn it from Leibniz, or how did he get it? He inferred it as he studied the universe, actually. This was, as I say, Hubble's protege and successor mm -hmm. at Mount Palomar, Alan Sandage. Yeah. And this was his inference that he arrived to as he observed. Well, uh, I don't think that we've ever understood why science is so successful. Uh, Eugene Wigner, who was one of my professors when I was an undergraduate, uh, said that uh, the thing that's most amazing is how mathematics seems to be available, often invented just a little bit before it was needed, uh, to describe whatever we scientists seem to find. Uh, in an essay that he wrote about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the physical sciences, he said, it's as if we have a small number of keys, and we're walking down a long hallway. And if the first key we doesn't try, we, we try, doesn't open the door, the second or third key always seems to do it. Okay. It's amazing. Einstein said the most surprising thing about the universe is that we can understand it. So I don't think that we have any deep insight into why this is true, and uh, it's one of the things I think that we scientists revel in but also are, in some sense, always surprised at. Uh, science is incredibly successful. Many scientists start out as you know, young students, and by the time they finish their first major project, they've made a significant discovery. Okay. Now, do you have a logical alternative explanation, though, if it's not a super intellect that put the universe together in an orderly fashion. Well, uh, it's not clear what a superintellect would mean, but I think that, like most theoretical physicists, I think that God is a mathematician uh, in the sense that uh, the underlying behavior of the universe does seem to be describable by the sort of mathematics that we figured out how to invent. Uh, that seems to be a fact. The thing that I think is surprising is that we were able to invent this sort of thing. Uh, the usual way that we think about how we humans came to uh, exist after Darwin is that uh, lots of different uh, planet uh, of animal organizations were tried, and the ones that were successful survived. So it was a kind of survival of the fittest. Uh, biologists who are sophisticated about evolution hate that. And they say that's not the way they think about it at all. But actually, that isn't even how Darwin thought about humanity. Uh, Darwin wrote two great books. Uh, the first, The Origin of Species, 1859, and the second, Descent of Man, Sexual Selection, uh, 1872. And it was in trying to figure out where we came from that Darwin realized that probably sex has a lot to do with it, and in particular, sexual selection. The fact that males and females of our species and its immediate predecessors seem to like intelligence and uh, entertainment value and things like that. 
And so they selected for those kinds of qualities. That's probably why we're so smart, why uh, the brains that we have grew so rapidly in a period of just a million years or so to be four times the size of those of our immediate primate relatives. The one lady in the cave says to the other, Og is much more interesting than Mog. Exactly. And, uh, but the amazing thing is that that seems to have somehow set us up to figure out how the universe works. Sure, sure. See, so we did it. Absolutely. But actually, it's a male and female thing. It, uh, mm. The fact that uh, human males and females are about the same size, yeah. in other words, there's no great sexual dimorphism, shows that it's mutual. It's not that uh, mm. the, 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 it's not like peacocks with their enormous tails in the males and very plain-looking females. Uh, the, the males and the females are both selecting each other pretty clearly in our species. We go back to the phones. Here's another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, it's a fantastic program tonight. Uh, and uh, many years ago, I read a story by Wilbur Daniel Steele, uh, the man who saw through heaven, expresses the idea that all our atoms, or smallest particles, may contain universes of their own, and that uh, also that uh, our universe is an atom in a larger universe. And uh, this goes up and down infinitely, possibly. Uh, I thought it was just science fiction, but I was thrilled when I heard uh, Carl Sagan express that same idea on his uh, uh, TV show, and it's in his book, too, Cosmos. Is that possible? No, it's not possible. And it is science fiction. There was this uh, movie, a very entertaining movie, I think it was in the 60s or something, about uh, a submarine. And the idea was that this guy was uh, sick and and they couldn't get to um, this part of his body. And so they shrunk this little submarine down with the people and everything. And they sent the submarine through his blood vessels to yes. break up some kind of a blood. blood. Yes, I remember it. Yeah. Okay, well, now just think about this a minute. Because the people on the submarine... Their eyeballs were smaller than the wavelength of light, so how do they see? The point is you can't shrink things and expect them to work the same way. Everything has the size that it is, and it cannot work the way it does unless it's about the size that it is. This is one of the fundamental characteristics of the modern universe. An atom cannot be shrunk. An atom is it has its size because of the laws of physics. You cannot shrink atoms. If you can't shrink them, you can't have a very complicated thing that's very small because there won't have enough atoms. It won't have enough atoms in it to be complicated. For example, complicated like our consciousness. So no, you cannot have a universe inside an atom. All you can have inside an atom is an atom. But it's all relative, isn't it? No. Sorry. No, because there's really a size to the universe. There's really a, a smallest size, the Planck length. And that's it. That's the end of the line. Okay. Sorry, sir. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Find another form of fiction. <laughs> or just enjoy the science fiction for yeah. what it the, is. The, th the thing to keep in mind about science fiction is it's fiction. Yeah. I must read this to you. This really uh, interests me considerably. Um, a, an email that chides me. I, I read, I greatly respect your intellect and the interesting shows which you host. Thank you. Uh, and then he goes on to say, I hold you in great regard, yet there is nothing more baleful to your reputation than discussing aliens with your guest. Please excuse me for saying that there is nothing scientific about aliens. There is no scientific evidence that aliens have ever lived. Your ideas influence all who tune in. Thus, please be careful not to mislead us. I exhort you to only be scientific. Uh, 
what would they what would Frank Drake say if somebody addressed that complaint to him? Well, you can't say that something isn't scientific because it hasn't been discovered yet. I mean, the dark energy was only discovered in 1998, but if there hadn't been theorists talking about how it would work if it existed, no one would have known how to recognize it when it was discovered. We have to talk about the things we haven't discovered yet because how can we possibly discover them otherwise? We do that even with regard to particles, don't we? Everything. Absolutely. Everything. Yeah. The guys over at Fermilab are constantly positing particles and then spending millions of dollars crashing things together to get evidence of those particles. Well, in fact, uh, I was in that game, uh, and to some extent still am. I'm trained as a particle physicist. Yeah. Uh, the particle that most people seem to think is most likely the dark matter is one that uh, my late colleague Heinz Pagels and I proposed back in 1982. Uh, some other clever people, including uh, Michael Turner from the University of Chicago. I know Michael. He's been on this program many times. So uh, they named it Weakly Interacting Massive Particles mm -hmm. with the lovely acronym WIMP. Right. Because even though these particles are probably as massive mm -hmm. as uranium atoms, maybe even more, they just go right through us and hardly do anything to us at all. So they're very wimpy. Anyway, many people think that supersymmetric WIMPs are the dark matter, and that's what uh, Pagels and I had proposed. And there are many experiments, each costing many million dollars, going on all around the world to try to observe these things. And the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva is going to turn on soon, <laughs> next year, and they hope to make a bunch of them. But uh, if theorists like me hadn't worked out the properties of these particles ahead of time, no one would know how to look for them. So uh, I I'm just re repeating what Nancy said, that we have to think about possibilities like alien intelligences before we can actually discover them. It rarely happens that we stumble onto something without having given it some thought ahead of time. Of course, we're looking quite close to home for not alien intelligences, but at least for life forms that may have developed elsewhere. I haven't, of course... In mind, Mars exploration and the search for some evidence of life having existed, if only in uh, in bacterial form, so to speak, on the surface of Mars. Absolutely. Uh, if we discover life that's essentially different from life on Earth, that doesn't share our DNA, all life on Earth, mm -hmm. from the simplest microbes to any kind of animal, all exactly the same kind of DNA with the same genetic code, if we ever discover a form of life that doesn't have that, that will be perhaps the most important discovery in biology because it will tell us a completely new kind of thing about life, a different sort of life than the kind that we know about. And uh, that would be a whole new branch of biology. And it has been posited by many science fiction writers that you could get life uh, not on the carbon cycle as ours is uh, chemically organized, that uh, you might have totally different forms of life because of a, a different intrinsic biochemistry. It turns out uh, chemists know a lot about the elements, and carbon is so much better than any other yeah. element for making complex molecules that can interact with each other. It's very hard to see how you could have anything that would be remotely as interesting as carbon-based life. But of course, uh, there are some very clever chemists who uh, think that it might be possible. Uh, another email. Uh, I am a middle school science teacher in Naperville. That's 
suburban to Chicago, and I'm fascinated with uh, this subject. To what degree would I be able to share some of your work with my students? Are there simple analogies to describe dark matter, dark energy, or even our place in the universe? I want to challenge their minds as much as possible when it comes to current science topics. Yes, this is what we do in our book. We try to make uh, these concepts as accessible as possible. One of the things we do, for example, is um, we have guided meditations as to what it would feel like if you really believed the universe was like this. And, you know, not only would this work with children, but um, I have to say that my father had a stroke a year ago, and it was his greatest sadness that he could never read this book. But my mother tried reading it to him. He couldn't get it. But when she read him these uh, meditations, which we call contemplations, which really are not didactic in any way, you just sort of flow with them and feel yourself living in the universe as it actually may be. Um, he can understand that. He can actually get into the feeling of it. I believe anybody, even little kids, could probably get that. We also have some stories in the book, and we have lots of uh, imagery and you know, lots of metaphor, because when you're talking about uh, aspects of the universe that no one has ever seen or experienced, that's pretty much all you've got is metaphor. So yes, I think that not only should you share this with children, it's really desperately important that children learn that the universe is not the way um, it seems and not the way people around them think that it is. It's very hard to change your picture of reality when you get older. It's much easier when you're younger. Now, this uh, listener says he's a middle school science teacher. Um, would the view from the center of the universe, your new book, work at a middle school level? We've tried it out at the high school level, and I think it definitely works there. Nancy uh, lectured to a high school class just recently. Uh, we actually were invited to address a big national meeting of Montessori teachers, and we tried some of the ideas out uh, on them, and they seemed to like them. These are people who teach preschool up through early uh, mm -hmm. uh, grades. Uh, one of the problems that Nancy was just alluding to that we've encountered year after year as we teach undergraduates at the university level is that they already have so many ideas in their heads that when we teach them something new, they just tack it on on top like a post-it note. They can regurgitate the words on examinations. They're quite good at that. But if you ask them to think with these new concepts, they typically just revert to the old ways that they have been thinking since they were little kids. It's very hard to break through that. That's one of the reasons yeah. that Nancy was uh, challenged to do these contemplations, uh, to try to break through, to get people to challenge the misconceptions that they may have accumulated over the years. I will want to send your book to my beloved grandson, Max, who's nine years old and is terribly interested in astrophysics and knows a fair amount about it. And more recently, he somehow discovered uh, work on electromagnetism, which utterly obsesses him. He's been, he, he was visiting here recently, and he drew us diagrams about the electromagnetic fields surrounding the Earth. But also, he's terribly preoccupied with and excited by uh, the idea of a multiverse. And uh, I think he's ready for this book. Uh, and we are ready. Indeed, we are overdue for a last round of commercials. The book that we've been drawing from tonight, but hardly doing its full justice, there's so much in it, is The View from the Center of the Universe by Joel R. Premack and 
Nancy Ellen Abrams. It is published by Riverside. Riverhead. Riverhead Books. Don't have my reading glasses on. <laughs> That's small print. Uh, and we go directly back to the phones. 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Hi. Excellent show tonight, Milt. I, In uh, what way is this night different from all other nights? Very good. Very good. Go ahead. Um, I think that uh, you you, uh, you touched on the ultimate question of uh, where did everything come from. And um, I think that there's this underlying assumption that um, something has to come from something, that uh, something cannot emanate from nothing. And I, it seems like um, perhaps in a different realm or maybe, you know, with a god or something, uh, you might be able to explain that perhaps in, in a different place, different rules apply, and maybe something can come from nothing. And uh, I'd like to get your... Uh, I'd like to get uh, your opinion or your thoughts on that. By all means. Well, uh, in quantum mechanics, you have basically uncaused events all the time. Uh, the classical idea of causation simply fails. That's not how the world works on the subatomic level. Now, the early universe was on the subatomic level, according to our modern ideas, cosmic inflation. The entire visible universe was once smaller than the size of an atom. That may seem completely incomprehensible. Uh, we try to explain how it's possible. But uh, that's certainly the viewpoint of modern cosmology. And so that's why the idea that quantum-level events can be uncaused, they're just chance, and yet this can be relevant for our whole universe. That's what we're really saying. That's what the modern theory is saying. Our whole universe was, in some sense, a chance event. Actually, a lot of chance events. That's what set it up. That was what basically created the large-scale structure of the universe, the blueprint, before creation really happened. That's the picture of uh, cosmic inflation, which has actually, in every way that we've been able to test it, turned out to be right. It makes lots of predictions, and the predictions seem to be coming true. There are some more tests that will be done soon. But if this continues to survive the onslaught of data, that the wonderful telescopes that we have all over the Earth and in space, uh, the data that these great instruments are providing, if this theory continues to survive, then I think we're beginning to appreciate that our universe may in fact have come not from nothing, but from no cause. So that that takes us back to the time. Does that take us back to the time of the origin of the universe, though? I mean, I think what and I I do have some physics background, but uh, it seems like your explanation takes us back to the time that the uh, universe was uh, was reducible, reduced down to a very tiny particle. But then you you're, you're still left with that that question of how do you make that leap from the fact that you have this particle to what happened before the particle. Right. That's well, isn't it true that now, particularly with the kinds of um, uh, inflation theory that uh, is current, and we've talked about Linda and his work, isn't it true that now uh, it is commonly assumed or at least conjectured that the Big Bang may have been an event uh, of a reality already in existence. Yes. Uh, the most natural extrapolation backward from cosmic inflation 
appears to be this multiverse idea yeah. that uh, the universe that we came from was an inherently quantum mechanical universe. And that our universe bubbled out of it. Exactly. And that lots of others are probably doing so all the yeah. time. Uh, exactly. Which puts off the question of ultimate origin. Well, yet another way. Yes, it's not necessarily a satisfying answer to a scientist because at the moment we don't know any way to test it. Yeah. So it's sort of a fairy story. But at least it's consistent mathematically with the theory that is testable, which is called cosmic inflation. And it's a very interesting picture that a lot of people find uh, exciting. So we try to explain it several different ways, including ways that... Uh, no one else seems to have uh, thought of it of, of using before. Brian Green of Columbia, who was with us perhaps a year or so ago, I, as I remember, it suggested that maybe ultimately there are some falsifiable predictions that might be derived that maybe you can get a scientific test of cosmic inflation theory. Well, I'd be very interested if he could publish one. Yeah. I don't believe he has. I've discussed it with Brian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also with Andre Linda. Uh, uh -huh. He's a very good friend of ours. Uh, in fact, uh, he read and critiqued an earlier version of our chapter on uh, inflation and eternal inflation. Uh, the uh, The problem is that although it's a very nice sounding theory and very exciting to work out, and a lot of interesting work has been done to try to just understand it intellectually, mm -hmm. no one has succeeded in finding a prediction that this sort yeah. of theory makes that could allow it to be falsified. And so we don't really regard it as having the same scientific status as the other things that we've been talking about. A last question, which comes to us by email from a listener in Garden City, New York. Do your guests read science fiction novels or watch science fiction films or television shows? If so, which writers, films, or shows do they admire or enjoy and why? I must say I really don't watch very much uh, science fiction. Although I've written a science fiction novel. Oh, you have? Yes. Published? No. What What do you do in the novel? What's the premise of the novel? Uh, the premise of the novel is that we have received a message from um, a very wise alien race that invites us to come and visit and promises us fantastic knowledge if we will just come to get it. And then it gives us instructions on how to build the spaceship so the technology is not the problem. But the Earth chooses a certain crew, and the questions start right away. What kind of people should we send to meet these aliens? What kinds of characteristics should they have? And on the ship, uh, the, the crew is finally put together, the question arises, um, there's a crisis, and the, the real question is, to what are we loyal? Are we loyal to this to this voyage? And if so, what's the meaning of the voyage? This is a novel about how human beings have to change themselves, how they have to become a certain kind of new community in order to deal with aliens. It's not really about the aliens. It's about the trip getting there and the transformation of this group of earthlings into a new kind of community. And I assume Joel Premack has read the novel. <laughs> oh, I loved it. Uh, why, are, why is it not published yet? Something, something must be arranged. It'd be lovely. Uh, what actually happened is uh, Nancy had what seemed to be a, a very good uh, agent uh, uh -huh. who was working with her who had a sex change operation and suddenly lost interest in being a literary agent for science fiction, although 
It'll uh, do that. It'll seemed, do that sometime. Yes, yeah. right. Well, anyway, uh, and then uh, we became preoccupied with writing this book, uh-huh. and I'm hoping that uh, uh, Nancy's science fiction novel uh, may eventually be published after all. And the reference to this book is to the book in hand that from which we've been drawing tonight, The View from the Center of the Universe by Joel Premack and Nancy Ellen Abrams. I thank you both for uh, an excellent discussion, which I've much enjoyed.